Thank you, Brother Imondi. Let's go ahead and dismiss the children and they'll follow the Imondis over for our children's ministry. We'll be in Galatians chapter 5 this morning. Galatians chapter 5. We're glad for guests that are here. And I'm glad for our neighbor across the street, Paul. And Paul's with us right over here with Captain. We're glad you're here, Paul. And uh, then I thought I saw Miss Sprayberry. Is she in here? I thought right there, Miss Sprayberry. We're glad to see you back in. And uh, we've been praying for you and, and glad to see you back as well. Um, Galatians chapter 5. And then glad to see the rest of us too, right? For those joining us, we've been going through a series in Galatians dealing with this matter of finding freedom. God died on the cross to give us freedom, liberty. But not everything that we call freedom is freedom. The same is true here in our country or around the world, what some may consider their right, their freedom. Those sometimes will conflict and, and it ought not be that way. But in the Christian life, God designed that we would experience real joy and freedom. So he saves us. He offers salvation to save us from sin. Sin is, is where bondage is. And in fact, John chapter 3 says, because of that sin, you do not experience condemnation when you miss heaven and go to hell. In fact, John 3 tells us, when you're not saved, without Christ as your Savior, you're condemned already. You're under condemnation, and the danger is you take your last breath without Christ as your Savior, you have to pay sin's penalty price, and that is all of eternity separated from God. But when God saves a person, He saves them so that they grow in that liberty and freedom and experiencing all that God has for them. But sometimes people experience going back into bondage, and that's what happened with the Galatians. Paul writes to these Galatians, and in chapter number one, he talks about the fact that they lost their focus. And he reminded them in chapter number one and verse four that Christ died to deliver them from this present evil world. See, we tend too often to talk about salvation in past tense. But he said, whatever you're going through today, if you don't get victory over that, if it's getting over you and it's overtaking you, you don't know freedom. You don't know what God intended for you to experience by way of salvation. They lost their focus. Judaizers, these would be people who knew the Bible, knew Paul's words, but they began to twist. They began to, to use the word of God to bring God's people back into bondage. And these Judaizers... They were deceiving, they were tricking, they were, and that's the wordage, verbiage that Paul used in the words that he chose. You're being bewitched, you're being almost like a spell has been cast upon you. You're buying into their argument that if you really want God's blessing, you'll go back and bring some Old Testament laws into the equation. They talk about Abraham. Namely, the issue here is circumcision and God's people are buying into, well, we, we've got to obey all these laws so we can have all of God's blessing. A little bit of law, a little bit of blessing, more law, more blessing. Let's get it all in. And Paul has begun to, to help them see you've lost focus. And he began to ask them in chapter number three, let me ask you a question. Did you get saved by keeping the law or by faith in Christ? 
And the hypothetical was very clear. Of course, they didn't get saved by keeping the law. And so he goes on to say, why are you so foolish then to think that if you got saved by faith in Christ, that you would try to live any other way? And he goes into chapter number four and he begins to talk about this matter of bondage still. If you don't get out of this bondage and this thinking, wrong thinking. And this matter of, of trying to do the best you can. And that's what those in bondage many times are saying. I'm doing the very best I can. And he began to go back to Abraham. And he began to talk about this promise that God gave Abraham that he would be the father of, uh, of the, the, the um, people of God. And, and he promised a son. But God didn't do it the way Abraham thought he should do it. God didn't do it when Abraham thought. He should do it. And Abraham's getting old. And it's not working out. God's kind of blessed everybody else but me, was Abraham's mindset. So Sarah, Abraham's wife, said, I've got an idea. Why don't you take my handmaid and you could have that son through her since I can't give you one. And Abraham listened to the wrong words, the wrong message. And he took Hagar, had a son by Hagar, and God said, you make your choices, but your choices then make you. You've got your son, but God says, you're not getting my blessing. Why? Because Abraham got what Abraham could do. See, God doesn't bless what Abraham does. God doesn't bless what you and I do. God only blesses what he does. Let me say that again. God only blesses what he does. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And Jesus isn't saying, I'm trying to help you build your kingdom and I'm not trying to bless you so you can get the glory. He says, what I'm trying to do is get you to abide in me, I in you, because when you depend upon me, you'll find the blessing that God gives to the work of God. In fact, the judgment seat of Christ is a determining factor as to who you and I have been depending upon. He's not going to bless our kingdom building. He blesses anything that's been in dependence upon him. And so God rejected. He rejected Hagar's, uh, Abraham's way through Hagar and the son. And so we are told that Abraham, he gets to be a um, hundred years old and his wife Sarah is 90. And then God brings about the humanly impossible scenario. And he brings about a child, that son that he promised. It's a reminder, God's still God. He, he may not show up on your time frame, but God's always on time. Yeah. I remember... Uh, over in John chapter 11, some had gone to Jesus and said, Lazarus is sick. You get there, you can stop it. Jesus didn't get there when they thought he should get there. In fact, Martha says, if you'd been here, our brother had not died. You think of the arrogance to tell Jesus, if you would have done what we told you to do. People get all sideways when God doesn't do what they think he should do. And we see the authority. We'll talk about this tonight in the spiritual warfare message as we continue into the spirit 
the sword of the Spirit, the Spirit's sword, and talk about the power of the Word of God. But Jesus said, this is good. This is good for you. So that you can see what God's been trying to get them to see. And God said the same thing to Abraham. This is good for you. Because if you don't let God's process take place, you don't get the product of God's promise. And God gave him that promised son. And he's trying to get them to see, you want to go the way of the law, what you can do, you're going to get what you can do. You want to go by way of God's promise, you'll get what God promises to do. Chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Stand fast, therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. We're continuing the series. This is a message. This is a continuation of the message of last week. Freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ. And Paul is challenging these Galatian Christians to rest and rejoice in the freedom that Christ has provided. Not just at salvation, but in this process of the Christian life known as sanctification. Freedom. Have you found it? Are you searching for it? Freedom is of God. But freedom has an enemy. It's the enemy Paul's been hitting all the way through. And we looked at these. We're going to hit them again. But the enemy of freedom is legalism. Legalism. Legalism is a law focus that inevitably results in self-dependence. So when it comes to getting saved, someone says, I'm trying to do the best I can. I'm trying to keep the law. I'm trying to keep the Ten Commandments. I'm not doing as many bad things as I could do. I'm trying to do this, whether it's I got baptized, I joined a church, I read my Bible, I pray. All these things in order to get saved would fit the definition or qualification of legalism. Because what that is, is a person who's focused on lists or rules or laws in order to produce salvation. But legalism doesn't just stop at salvation. Legalism carries over to the Christian life. And Paul's talking to Christians who have adopted this legalistic mindset. Meaning that these are people who are still focusing on rules and lists and laws. And what happens is a lot of times people think in order to get God's blessing and favor to be right with God, we have to do this and do this and do this and do this and do this. And if we don't do this and this and this and this, then we don't get God's favor. So the focus tends to be on the list or the set of rules or the law, and it results in I'm doing the best I can. I am trying. I am trying so hard. And what that does is it takes people who, if they're truly saved, takes them back into bondage. Why? Because when it comes to works for salvation, the reason you cannot have works to bring about salvation is because you'll never be able to do enough works. And so it's bondage. The reason that legalism is a problem in the Christian life is because when it's a works, a doing mindset to bring God's favor, the problem is 
we'll never feel like we've done enough. Unless you become like the Pharisees and you feel like I've done enough. Nobody else has, but I have. And God rejects that. Why? Because both that Pharisaical mindset or these, this matter of legalism in the Christian life, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm, do, I'm not doing this like those people are. I'm doing these things. Therefore, God, he should be impressed or he should, he should give me blessing. What that is, is focused again on rules and lists and laws and it results in self-dependence. Just as the man trying to get saved by what they do, we are now trying to get God's blessing based upon what we do. Paul's hitting it. It's, it's, it's um, legalism. For, for the Galatians, it became the issue of circumcision. And they're saying if we really want to be blessed and be like Abraham, then we're going to have to buy into this. And it shifted their, they lost their focus in chapter number one, he points out. And their focus went away from Christ and it went to something. And it, it ultimately brought dependence um, upon themselves, self-dependence. Now, we mentioned last week, if we don't get a hold of this matter of dealing with legalism, it'll lead into license. That's a lax approach to living the Christian life. Legalism is a law focus. License living is no law. And so he'll get into that in chapter number five of sin. I, I just indulge in whatever self wants. And when you live by legalistic mindset, Here's what I do. I'm doing the best I can. That wears you down. And you turn from, I'm not even concerned about getting God's blessing and favor. It can go right into a licensed living and do whatever I want to do. God hasn't struck me down yet. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I don't really care about what the Bible says. I don't care what the preachers say. I don't care what my parents say. I don't care what God has to say. Let me go into licensed living. But here's the common denominator between legalism, law living, and license, lax living, it's both self-dependent. They're both self, whatever. One is doing the best I can, legalism, law, license, and lax is, I don't really care. I just do whatever I want to do. I'm my own man. I do my own thing. Nobody tells me what to do except all the other people around you who you look like and they look like you. So somebody's listening to something. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, you're either the servant of God or you're the servant of sin. If you're the servant of God, you're free from sin. If you're the servant of sin, you're free from God. But you're serving somebody. But the matter of this license living is is a pandemic. And so where are we wanting to be? Where God wants us to be. That is liberty living. Liberty living is what he says in verse one, stand fast therefore in the liberty. That's freedom. If legalism is law focus, license is no law focus, both legalism and license are self-dependent. What is liberty? Liberty is Jesus' focus. And Jesus' focus results in God-dependence. Now, when you're Jesus-focused, 
you keep the law. He doesn't throw out the law. Jesus said, I came to fill it up, Matthew chapter 5. He didn't come to destroy it. But you know what Jesus talked about when he brought up the law in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples? He said, you've heard that it was said in time of old, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery. You know what Jesus went on to say? That's the letter of the law. You know that and you think you're pretty good because you keep that. But he says, what about the spirit of the law? And see, Jesus isn't trying to get us out of following the word of God. He's just saying, whatever you focus on is whatever you depend upon. And if you're just going to focus on a bunch of rules and lists, that's why people leave a church. They'll go to another church whose list looks better than this one or that one. And they're just trying to find, let me see your list. Can I see your list? I like your list better than their list. You only have five things on yours. They, they had seven on theirs. You know, the, the, the whole problem with the Pharisees is that they knew every law. But they didn't know the Lord of the law. And when you and I have a focus on the law, no law, we're still in bondage. But when our focus is on Jesus, we find liberty. When your focus is on the law, do you know what you find? These laws get hard. John says, the law's not grievous. His commandments are not grievous. Why? Because when you're Jesus-focused, he gives you something that is desperately needed to keep the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. We're going to get into that. In fact, that's what he talks about in these first few verses in this matter of finding freedom. But we need to understand these three aspects. And so keep in mind this matter of, of um, how people may define legalism and liberty. You know, a lot of times I've heard people say, I don't go to church. I have liberty in Jesus. Well, one, they don't know the Jesus of the Bible. And number two, they don't know his liberty. And some people use the word legalist. I've been called a legalist. One man, the first time I heard it, man, I've heard, I was referenced that. A man said, your problem, problem with your preaching is you're a legalist. I said, I don't get too much free advertisement. Just spell the name correctly. Let me ask you a question. What does that mean? He said, I don't know. <laughs> and so just because it sounds good, and, it, and usually what it's applied to is anybody who has rules and standards that are different than mine, they become a legalist or stricter than mine, they become a legalist. I'm pretty sure God's to the right of all of us. And I'm not going to call God a legalist. Are you going to get in line for that? No, he's not come that we would find the way of hardness. The way of the transgressor is hard. But Jesus says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. He says, go ahead and let's take this, this working terminology, put this imagery in your mind, this harnessing up. And, and how do people who tend to use, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I don't want somebody to cram the Bible down my, my throat. And uh, no one's going to be a, a Bible thumper in my life and get in my face. And Jesus said, you want to find freedom? Come to me. 
and take my harness. And most people who are in bondage, who are running as Jonah from the presence of the Lord, as if that were even possible, when it comes to this matter of putting a harness or a yoke on them, they have this idea of, get that off me. Don't put that on me. But Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. And he says, here's what you're going to find out when you're Jesus-focused. I'm meek and I'm lowly in heart. And you're going to find rest for your souls. For my yoke that everybody's trying to get this off of me, this legalistic, this beast off of me. Jesus said, you'll find my yoke is easy. My, Jesus is saying him, my burden is, yeah. But the way the transgressor is hard. You want to go the easy way? Then find freedom. And Jesus, let's figure out some more things about it this morning, shall we? Here we are in Galatians 5 and verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the freedom or in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. I want to mention a few things this morning here. I think we'll have these on the screen to help a little bit with this. And let me just tell you how it's kind of laid out in these first few verses. We're only going to look down to verse number five and, uh, and get to verse number um, six. Uh, we're, we're actually, I won't touch verse six, really. We'll pick that up. That's a whole other thought. But down through verse five, verse two, three, and four, verses two, three, and four, they're going to portray a way to stay under the yoke of slavery. So, Paul's using these verses kind of as a warning against slavery to sin and bondage. And then verse 5, he's going to give a positive description of how to stand in freedom. So if you have that in your mindset, it'll help. But here's one way to miss out on God's freedom. Here's a way to stay in that legalistic, rule-focused, self-dependent way of living, trying to earn God's favor. Number one, don't bribe God for a blessing. Don't bribe God for a blessing. That's verses two and three. Look at it. Behold, Paul says, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you. Say the word. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. He's emphasizing that this matter of circumcision again. And and keep in mind that this whole book has been touching on what the Galatians who Paul led to the Lord had pointed to Christ. These teachers got in and uh, Judaizers, these uh, who have been deceiving and they have gotten God's people to get enslaved uh, by casting before them this carrot of, don't you want God's blessing? Don't you want his favor? Well, if you do, then you will want to do everything that our father Abraham did. Circumcision was one of those. So they're going down this, this trail. And so that's why circumcision is brought up. If it was another matter of the law, um, Burning a sacrifice, Paul would have dealt with that, but he's dealing with what they were struggling with, so it became the matter of circumcision. And so he's trying to get them to see this, if you go the way of circumcision, verse number two, Christ doesn't profit you. 
And if you go by way of circumcision because you found it in the law, verse 3, you're debtor to the whole law. All right? If you were looking at this and didn't know the other chapters, the casual reader could conclude, oh, this is simple. Paul says circumcision is wrong and it displeases God. You see that? Do you see it? You with me? And non-circumcision is right and that pleases God. Again, if you just started reading in chapter 5 and, and you, you were not a part of chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, you could easily make the conclusion. So the point is, do what pleases God. Avoid circumcision at all cost. That's what he says in chapter 5. But that's not what he's been saying all along. And it technically is not what he says in chapter 5. And I want to say with that, that's what superficial reading of the scripture does. It, here, in this case, it makes non-circumcision into something just as dangerous as circumcision. What is it? A work. If you get circumcised, that's bad. It doesn't please God. So we're not circumcised. We're better than they. And therefore, we have God's blessing. What Paul is saying, and, and he's going to look, say it very clear and, um, in verse number four, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Notice verse 6. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor, what's the word? Uncircumcision. So he's saying that if you're going to be the one that embraces circumcision because it's the law, that's going to get God's blessing on our life, you're a legalist. If you say we have God's blessing on our life because we don't follow circumcision, Paul says you're still a legalist. You're in bondage because you have turned something that is good into being essential. And he says, your focus is wrong. See, the point of verse 2 and 3 is, listen, the point of verse 2 and 3, are you with me? The point of verse 2 and 3 is not that circumcision in itself is wrong. The point of verses 2 and 3 is that any act is wrong that we do to gain God's favor because you're bribing God. Circumcision happened to be, it's just the requirement that Judaizers picked up. And so Paul's going after that. This matter of bribing, it's, God, I did this. I don't deserve to go through all this. God, I did this. I deserve this. Why are we trying to bribe God? In case we have forgotten, we deserve hell. Yes, even you who thinks you don't. Paul is saying in chapter 5 and verse 1, stand fast 
Don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Stop submitting again to this yoke of slavery. Look at it again in verse 2. If you get circumcised, he says, Christ will profit you nothing. The problem with the Judaizers was that they wanted to cash in on Christ's profit, but only by making investments with him for their own moral assets. And so Paul says that if you try to earn dividends from Christ, from your own investment of circumcision or dietary rules or animal sacrifices of the Old Testament, what he says, no matter what it is, Christ does not profit you. Why? Because all the spiritual and physical benefits Christ gives are dividends paid from his own investment at the cross of Calvary. That's why I'm telling you, when God's people sing at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, or years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord who was crucified, and we sing about the cross, it ought to do something for us because that is the difference maker, not what you do. Just as the majority of people, God's people in here would say and, and be disheartened, would be, be crushed when you hear somebody say, I, I'm going to heaven because I'm doing the best I can. You know they're missing heaven. You know that that's not the way of salvation. But when Paul is saying, I hear God's people say, I think I'm right with God. I think I have God's blessing because I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm doing the best I can. Paul says, you're enslaved. You're in bondage. You don't know the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. See, Christ's prophets, he's saying in verse 2, they're not yours if you try to earn them with your own investments. That's what he's saying. Why? Because it actually dishonors Christ. He says in chapter 2 and verse 21, it nullifies grace. It cancels out grace. If you do it, it cancels out grace. It removes the stumbling block of the cross, chapter 5 and verse 11. So verse 2, it teaches that slavery is when you reject Christ as the merciful benefactor who gives us freely a share in his endless profit. Slavery is when you choose to deal with him as a banker who needs your investment to produce dividends for you as a customer. Have you ever been there? Maybe you're not there now, but have you ever been there? I have. I remember even things such as 1 John 1, 9, I know I need to confess my sin, agree with God, and I'd confess my sin, unload the truck. And in my thinking, I would think, Brother Foote, um, you know, if I get up and I don't do this again for maybe 24 hours, then I'll get God's hand of blessing. I just went from Bible truth, Bible practice of agreeing with God to treating God as a banker again needing my investment, try not to commit this sin for 24 hours. Where I got 24 hours, I don't know. But it's because maybe I couldn't make it for 48 hours, so I was settling with 24. I eventually got down to 12 hours because I figured I'm going to sleep somewhere in there. I'm bound to be able to stay clean and clear. All that is is bartering and bribing for God's favor. And do you see why God's people have been crippled? Because we're not in freedom, we're in bondage when we're thinking. Let me give you a second. Wrong mindset. 
verse 3. Look at verse 3. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. All right? So here's another wrong mindset. It's what we're going to call the error of the gratitude ethic. I don't know if I gave you the same point. Is it, is it, don't let gratitude put you into the bondage of debt. I rewrote that. That one, go, go with that one. Don't let gratitude put you into the bondage of debt. Now, and this one's tricky, but this one's very, very key. Many people will have this mindset. I owe God everything. Look at all he's done for me, and I'm going to serve God with all my life because I owe him my all. There's a danger in the gratitude ethic. Verse 3, he's saying the same thing as he did in verse 2, just a bit different. This verse teaches in verse 3 that the mindset of slavery is the mindset of a debtor. Verse 2, it's more the mindset of one who's bribing and bartering. But here it's a debtor, one who is under pressure to pay back what he's borrowed or needs to borrow. Now, all the works of the law, including circumcision, are the currency with which the Judaizers aim to satisfy their debts to God. And the surprising point of this verse, verse 3, for us is that God does not want to deal with us. Listen, He doesn't want to deal with us as debtors. Now I say this is surprising because there's a very common view of Christian behavior that contradicts this. It's the attitude of gratitude. And I preach at Thanksgiving, we'll talk about the attitude of gratitude. But sometimes if we're not careful, the gratitude, it will undermine grace and liberty. That's what Paul's talking about. It says that God has done so much for me that I will devote my life to paying back my debt even though I know I will never be able to completely repay it. And even though most Christians who work out of this gratitude ethic would say that they're not trying to earn their salvation, they're not trying to earn God's favor or power, nevertheless, they will start working for God because He's given them so much and it's very easy to begin to think of God's free gift as a loan to be repaid or as advance wages to be earned. So the gratitude ethic, it will tend to put you in a position of a debtor. Listen, what was he talking about in chapter 4? He wants you to be a son, not a debtor. Why? Because if you go from being a son to a debtor, you've gone back into slavery. None of us, none of us, Dr. Childs, feels completely free while burdened with a debt to be repaid. God doesn't want you to feel a debt to Him. Christ does not want you to relate to him as a debtor who uses the law to make installment payments on an unending loan. You see that? Christ does not want you to relate to him as a debtor who uses the law to make installment payments on an unending loan. Why is this gratitude ethic wrong? Let me give you three things here. One, when the gratitude changes from a sense of joyful indebtedness 
to the feeling of having to pay back. I don't have anything to give them. Don't we sing, or have you heard the song, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. What can I give him that he's going to be rejoicing over? Just him. The only thing lovely is him. The only thing worthy is him. And so genuine gratitude is not the feeling of having to pay back. Genuine gratitude is a joyful thankfulness for what has happened. The second reason that this gratitude ethic is wrong is, number two, it diminishes the cross. That's why I think people can sing about the cross and, and, and they just look like they just, you know, kiss their mother-in-law. They just, just have no, there's just, there was nothing there. And it's because you've shifted your focus from the, the wonder of the cross to, look at all I got to pay back. I'm so tired. I just can't. And you've lost the wonder of the cross because you've put it on the not so wonderful you. We, we don't have anything to give back. When Christ died for our sins to repair the injury we had done to God's honor, our debt, listen, it was completely. There's no debt. And any effort to increase from our account the deposit made for us by Christ at Calvary, it's an insult to the infinite value of what Jesus did for us. I'll give you a third reason why this gratitude ethic is wrong. This is all what Paul's dealing with. Number three, it tends to think of God's work for us only in past tense. Because of all that he did for me, here's what I've got to do for him. I want to tell you, when Jesus died on the cross, it was 2,000 years ago, and the reason why he's only had to do it one time is because it's an ongoing, powerful work that never ceases to stop in its transformation in my life. Amen. See, it says, God's done so much for me. Now I've got to do so much for him. No, he's still doing so much for me. I can never repay. I'm not supposed to. I'm just supposed to say thank you, trust him. Be, as Paul beseeched us, make our lives a living sacrifice unto him. See, the gratitude ethic, it tends to forget that any patience, kindness, goodness, worship, etc., which we may offer to God, it's not coming from wonderful us. It comes from, as he's going to get into Galatians 5, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's what he does. So when verse 3 says that the person who gets circumcised is putting himself in the place of a debtor to God, we learn that God does not want to relate to us as debtors who try to pay him back. His will for us is that we are free, we stay free, and we recognize that our whole debt has been paid. We're not slaves who have to work to stay out of the poor house. We're sons with a glorious inheritance. Let me get number three here. Uh, this is Roman numeral number three. And this is where he's trying to emphasize. Verse number four, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever you are, uh, whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. So number three, he's saying freedom depends upon grace. We need God's grace. 
your relation to Christ is nullified when you try to take over and do something that grace is supposed to do. He's saying grace doesn't benefit you. And what this verse teaches then is that the experience of freedom, including the freedom of eternal life, the freedom of the Christ life, can only be enjoyed as we depend upon the grace of Christ. So the key to freedom is to keep depending upon grace. When we sing, the choir sings, grace will always be greater than sin. But what is grace? Well, we've heard all kinds of definitions. Let me just give you a simple definition, but, but true. It's just the Spirit's enabling. It's Holy Spirit enabling. God's grace is the Spirit of God enabling. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I paraphrase, but Paul says, I work harder than all of them. Though it wasn't I, but it's the grace of God that was with me. See, somebody can say, oh, look at Paul. He excels them all. But Paul's saying, I may have, but it wasn't me. It's God's grace. Grace is God's enabling effect in our lives to help us. See, we're free. You're free when God comes to help us and we joyfully trust his help instead of turning to the yoke of the law. Listen to it again. We're free when God comes to help us and we joyfully trust his help instead of turning to the yoke of the law. Remember last week I talked about Will, Will, you got to put the pine cones in the wheelbarrow and you've got this much time to get it done and, and you need to stay focused. And Will would say, Daddy, would you help me? And I could give him one of two things. No, you do it and you've got this time. If you don't do it in this time, you're in trouble. Or I can, as his daddy, get down there and help him. And he enjoys it at the same time. Do you know what grace is? It's daddy getting into our life and enabling us to do what he's told us to do and enjoy it at the same time. See, whenever you have looked at your Christian life and your responsibilities and duties and it becomes a heaviness to you and you've become bored or you've become cynical, you've become worn out, you've become, I can't, therefore I won't, it's because you don't know grace. But when you get God's grace into your life, God's grace is God's enabling power to be what I'm supposed to be, to do what I'm supposed to do, and enjoy it at the same time. And that's what Paul's saying. Now, now look at, here's how. Here's how this can be in the simplest of fashion. And, um, and, and let me just say, too, before we move on to this last one, that's what he was talking about in chapter 4. You can go the Ishmael, the Hagar-Ishmael route, that's you doing it. There's no freedom. Or you can go the Sarah and Isaac route. There's where God's promise and God's blessing get in. See, the key to freedom is whether God comes down to help us do what he requires and whether we live by faith in the work of grace. That's why you take a conqueror series group, seven pillars group. You get a men at a table. That's why one man can sit there and say, I'm the worst one here. And everyone listens to the testimony in, in a very uh, protected environment. And every man can conclude, yeah, you're probably the worst one here. 
But that man can experience greater change and have more joy, not because he's going to roll his sleeves up and grit his teeth and work real hard and just jump on the, the fundamental bandwagon of doing all the things that everyone else is doing just to fit in and look like everybody else. Because you can look like everybody else but have no freedom or joy on the inside. But when he taps into God's grace and his heavenly father and the Holy Spirit of God gets into that man's life and he starts experiencing joy and freedom and he found that the way of transgressors in sin bound to bondage and strongholds, that was hard. And he finds I'm doing stricter things now and I never thought I could do these things and I'm doing them but it's not me doing it. It's God and me enabling me. And I get to take part in it. And there's joy unspeakable and full of glory at the same time. So how? Well, look at verse 5 and we get done. In verse number 5, he says, For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Verse 5, he says, here's how free people stay free. How free people stay free. Free, Because remember verse 1, he says, don't get entangled again. They're going to go back into bondage. You know what the men's emphasis have been? Get free and stay free. What Paul is talking about in the spiritual warfare journey in Ephesians chapter 6, stand, stand, stand. After having done all, stand, stay free. Here's how free people, and by the way, this, this stand in verse number 1 Chapter 5, verse 1, is present tense command. And so the emphasis is keep standing. It's not a one time, you got saved, you stood. No, he says keep standing. How do free people stay free? Well, it's imperative that we stay in the way of faith. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by, say the word, faith. How does someone trust Jesus as their Savior? The key was trust. It's by faith. The way of faith, it means focus, maintains focus on the goal of faith. It's Jesus. And faith keeps the focus on the goal of faith. It's Jesus. The way of faith follows the new leader, Jesus. Not the old leader, the law or self. We can only follow one master at a time. When you find yourself entangled back in bondage, sometimes people come in for marriage counseling and begin just to unpackage. And then it's like, we got it from here. And don't realize later why, why we, we're worse off than what we were six months ago. And it's because you can only follow one master at a time. And you may have been following this new leader, Jesus, for a few moments and a few days, few weeks, few months, or even a few years. But you slip back into if you're not careful because you get comfortable and you get used to. You know the ropes. You know how to, how to do all this. And you can go right back into bondage. And he says, keep standing. How? By the way of faith. Keep your focus on Jesus. And Paul used this emphasis to warn against this matter of flesh dependence, law living, flesh dependence, license or lax living. That's why we hit mindsets so much. Mindsets um, instead of just a sermon. It's a message that comes from a mindset. And the mindset is, it's Jesus. 
Keep your focus on Jesus. Well, how, if it's by way of faith, then what, what's the key to this matter of faith? I, I trust Jesus, then what? Well, notice he says in verse number five, it's through the Spirit. For we, through the Spirit, through the Spirit, our lives begin by a work of the Spirit. Just like with Isaac's divine intervention. And our lives go on by the work of the Spirit. We're free because God sent the Spirit of His Son to help us pick up the pine cones. He doesn't stand aloof and make demands. And so some will, will in the Christian life, will say, I don't, I'm tired of picking up pine cones. I'm going to go to another church where you don't have to pick up pine cones. You know, you can go to another church. You can stop going to church. You can go a different way in your life to where you don't have to do. And what you end up settling with is what is comfortable and convenient for self. But I don't think Jesus saved us so that it would convenience us and just comfort self. So he says, I sent you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't, isn't going to say, oh, you don't want to pick up pine cones of loving your neighbor. You don't want to pick up the pine cones of no wrath. No wrath. No anger. How much anger? None. You, you, you don't like that message, do you? So the Holy Spirit says, don't worry about it today. You have a right to get angry. No bitterness. This is all Ephesians 4. No, no, no bitters. No, just a little, just a little. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit says, you, you want to be bitter? You deserve to be bitter today. And so what people do is they just pack up, pack up their, their Christian life, their bondage. And they're going to go find somebody else. You don't have bitterness on your list, do you? You don't have anger. On, let, 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 me, let me see how you define it. Because if I have a right to it, you better believe I'm going to use it. And the Holy Spirit says, well, maybe, maybe the Heavenly Father and the Son should have consulted with you and made you part of the Trinity. But the truth is, all you're doing is carrying around your bondage. You ever wondered why these six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination, and the first one is a proud? It's a look. Because what we get down into, you show me what I did. And God says, what others may not show you, I can see who you are. And he goes into the pride and even gets down into the discord of the brethren. Well, he puts a very unique string of things that God hates and seven are an abomination to the Lord. But what we do is, well, I just go somewhere else. I'm pretty sure the Holy Spirit can find you. You want to be free from him? You just do your own thing. 
You want his blessing? Well, how did you get saved? I tell you, the only way you can get saved, Brother Rick, I can't do it. When you realize I can't wash my sins away, I can't manufacture eternal life. I can't sneak into heaven, nor can I overrun the gates. I can't do it. But you can call upon the Lord. And when 911, I just got a, a message the other day. Sorry, but our 911 is not working. Please call this local number. I'm glad God's 911 line never is down. When you realize sin is your problem, is hell, is your destination, Jesus is the answer, you can't do it, but he can. And you call upon the name of the Lord, and it's all over but the shouting at that point, because he will come and become your Savior, wash your sins away, give you eternal life, take you to heaven someday. But until you get there, he's trying to get you to see the way you got saved is the way you live the Christian life. And every morning you wake up, you ought to say, God, I cannot. I cannot be what you want me to be. I cannot do what you want me to do. But thank you that you've sent the blessed Holy Spirit to come in and enable me to be what you want me to be, do what you want to do. I can't, but Jesus can. And then you find joy. Does it mean that there are no problems? No, I think Job was the man we mentioned earlier who's had more problems than, than any of us. In fact, God recommended Job. He asked Satan, have you ever considered my servant Job? I wonder if you would be on God's recommendation list to Satan. Satan said, he only worships you because he gets a blessing. Satan is saying, Job is something of a legalistic mindset, God. You take away his blessing, he's not going to work for you. Again, I, we quoted this morning that first chapter. Job, did he have tears? Yes, but he also had something that the Spirit of God gives through faith, and that is joy and peace. Did he have all of his answers to his questions? No. He couldn't even list all of his questions. But God also had some questions for Job, and Job couldn't even begin to fathom the questions that come from God. And it reminded him of this. You're God. I'm not. So until then, I'm going to go on trusting, accessing the grace of God, and celebrating the cause of Jesus Christ. Paul sitting in prison, what did he do? He said, Timothy, go get the disciples. We're going to form a picket line outside and we're going to protest my innocence. No, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Paul, you're going to lose your head. Rejoice in the Lord. Peter, you don't know how hard it's going to get for you. Peter, you're going to die a martyr's death. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. You know why these men had it and many of us don't? Is because they lived what they preached through the Spirit by faith. 
through the Spirit, by faith. Through the Spirit, by faith. Now the choice is yours. You want freedom, Jesus. You want bondage, self. Let's stand together, please.